fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of a mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Michael Hawley. Hi, Al. How you doing? I'm doing good, I guess. Not really. I haven't slept in a week. Of course. (laughs) Um, But you know how it is. Busy man. Lots of things going on. And, uh middle of summer it always flies by i always got too much to do right right but, uh but so we on the east coast we get hit with the uh the canadian uh fire smoke and all that stuff well you know that that was a planned thing i'm thinking that i'm thinking that yes. yeah yeah we're blowing smoke up here <laughs> <laughs> i like that one that's yeah. a good one yeah well somebody's got somebody's got to clear clear things up down there it's what a mess um, so yeah, yeah, we, we, we have these fires going and we blow smoke down there. We hire people, you know, college mm-hmm. students to blow the smoke all across the border. <laughs> all a conspiracy here, right? Gotcha. Gotcha. You conspiracy know? stuff that works sometimes, yeah. you know, part of the fake news world, but, uh, it's, it's a thing now. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the thing. Science fiction gone too far. Right. Especially like with this Oppenheimer stuff that I, uh, heard. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stranger than fiction. Well, we've, we've got the, uh, the author today and, uh, you know, he's Canadian. So look out. He's blowing smoke down there too. Part of, that's his next book. So, uh, Mr. Robert J. Sawyer, thank you for being here. Alan, it's delightful. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's always a pleasure. So, uh, so what's going on? You've been blowing smoke down to the States. Is this? You know, I, I feel talk. bad about it because, of course, uh, absolutely, the States is taking a lot of the brunt of these wildfires in Canada. On the other hand, you know, for quite some time and years gone by, we used to get all the smoke from the California wildfires coming up uh, into Canada. So it really is it just underscores the global nature of this problem. Eastern Canada on fire, Western Canada on fire, California on fire. Uh, you know, it's just uh, we're living in a tinderbox, and it's very, very frightening, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's been a lot of fires going on. And um, it's, it's strange because I haven't, I haven't seen so many fires. I think especially what Alberta and Quebec now has is, is got fires going on, uh, not just B.C., and that's right. We I, absolutely. That's right. British Columbia, Alberta, and Quebec, and some in Ontario here, where I live as well. Uh, it's uh, you know, I mean, we we had the hottest uh, June on record uh, last week. We had the three hottest consecutive record-setting uh, global average temperature days since record keeping began. I think you got to admit that there's a tie-in here to just. Uh, the world is getting warmer and fires are getting more severe. Absolutely. Yeah. How does how does that how does that go for a writer like you? Because you you deal with a lot of alternative facts in a sense. Like you're, you're creating a world, or you're taking something like in your book, the Oppenheimer alternative. So you've taken some some event or some time in history, and you've kind of made a a change, an alternative, let's say, to what we figure happened or we know happened but how is it it, it, i was going to say in this world today because you hear so many of these conspiracies like we make fun of it like on on the show and stuff but there's people dead dead serious about a lot of these conspiracies it really is difficult i have to say to be a science fiction writer in you know the uh, year 2023 if you're writing anything in the reasonably near future the rest of this decade at the uh, first half of the 21st century, maybe even the rest of the century, because, A, it's all nuts. No matter how crazily we predicted things were going to go, they've gone even more insane. 
And B, it's all happening so rapidly that it really is hard to keep up. Now, one of my hallmarks as a science fiction writer actually has been mostly near future or present day science fiction, very often indeed set in Canada, where I live. Uh, and uh, a number of my colleagues, Charlie Strauss, a great British science fiction writer, uh, for instance, is just you know thrown in the towel and says, you can't do near future anymore. Uh, by the time the book is out, uh, reality will have changed and pivoted so many times that whatever you thought you were extrapolating uh, forward to has been completely invalidated by, let's say, a COVID pandemic, let's say uh, a war breaking out in Europe, like uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Who knew that these things were going to come down the pike and come down the pike so quickly? And then right now, the incredible rise of artificial intelligence in this calendar year. I mean, incredible. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I see things. It just, it just it, it floors me because no matter what happens in the news, and it doesn't have to be just political, but, you know, for instance, that little underground submarine that went down to see the titanic wrecks that imploded and stuff now there's like a, a dozen conspiracy theories on that like people are very everything has to be a conspiracy now there has to be a meaning yeah it was, certainly we'd like to, for there to always human beings have always liked there to be an explanation a meaning uh somebody who caused things to happen and um Sometimes accidents just happen. On the other hand, there's a lot of the things that are going on right now that are our own fault, too. I mean, climate change and so forth. We've got to take a lot of blame for what's going on. But, you know, the submarine, you just have to look at the Titan was the name of the submersible. It had not been certified. It had not passed safety checks. Its own pilot and CEO of the company that was running it said, you know, safety is overrated. Well, he went down and died because yeah. of that arrogance. <laughs> right. What appeals to me and appeals is, you know, I use this very advisably because it's a tragedy. Right. But appeals to me as a writer is the irony of saying, you know, we're going to pay no attention to warnings. We're going to name our submersible titan we're going to go down and look at the ruins of the titanic what could possibly go wrong i mean talk about tempting fate yeah yeah it's just crazy i just um i i would be scared to write in your case in that sense i would be nervous kind of like what you know about the how things change so quickly nowadays and how things can be taken out of your hands and you've got a book completed and stuff. I, I'd be a little bit frightened. And also, are, are you, do you get, do you have people? I would imagine this too. You have people that read your books and, and they find things in your book or they find a meaning in something you've written that totally wasn't even on your mind, totally blows you away when they come up with it. Well, that does happen. You know, obviously there's a gap between when I finish the book. And when it's out, you know, I'm a traditionally published author. So and and even if though I'm a priority for the publishing company, it's still a year right. from when I finish a book until it's on bookstore shelves. And for people who are a little farther down the food chain, it's often two years from when they finish their manuscript to when it's actually in bookstores. Two years is, you know, an enormous it's a geologic era now, the way things are moving. Uh, if you wrote a book two years ago and didn't have generative AI, chat GPT, or had not thought, you know, that there was ever going to be war again in Europe or any of these things, you know, uh, yeah, it's very, very difficult. That said, uh, I'm always delighted when people say, oh, how did you figure that one out? And, you know, sometimes you get them right. And uh, that astonishes them. I remember when uh, uh, Benedict XVI became Pope. I had predicted that the Pope in that time would be named Benedict the Sixteenth in a novel that was uh, written in 1995. Sweet. <laughs> and uh, they, how did you do that? Well, I just looked at all the popes who hadn't disgraced themselves. Some names aren't <laughs> coming back, um, and then looked for who was due to have a comeback as a name and whose numbers should go up one. And Benedict the Sixteenth was easy enough to come up with. Uh, you know. So whereas John, who had been, of course the apologist pope during World War II uh, and had been somewhat complicit 
in allowing Hitler to have his uh, reign of terror, that name isn't coming back as a standalone name ever again. Well, you should have, you know, said you're a psychic. You had that you had this moment, and then you would be, you know. Sawyer the Psychic. Well, it's telepathy, right? A good standard <laughs> science fiction theme. And, you know, that dates back to the 30s uh, and 40s and 50s when we kind of, there was legitimate research going on to investigate mind-reading, telekinesis, uh, and, um, you know, remote viewing at places like Duke University, legitimate university. What they found, of course, is that it's all bunk. But for the time in which it entered the parlance of science fiction, mind reading, the Vulcan mind meld on Star Trek and all this kind <laughs> of stuff, it looked like legitimate science. And these things get kind of grandfathered into science fiction as they accrete over time. We pick up a lot of stuff that probably if we were starting from scratch today as a new genre, uh, we probably wouldn't have as part of our uh, our wheelhouse. So your book, the... The Oppenheimer alternative. Now, there's been a lot of press and a lot of talk about Oppenheimer, and then there's the the Nolan movie. There's everything happening. How does that affect you? How is this? How is this going for you? So, the Oppenheimer alternative, although it's my most recent book, my next one comes out this fall. It it actually is three years old now, and it kind of got clobbered by COVID. Uh, I insisted to the publisher that it be out for the 75th anniversary of the first atomic bomb test, which was July 16th, uh, the 75th anniversary of July 16th, 2020. And then three weeks later, the bombing of Hiroshima and three weeks, three days later, the bombing of Nagasaki uh, for those 75th anniversary events. And we had a book tour planned. We had a book launch scheduled for Los Alamos, where, of course, the Trinity test had originally been done and everything got shut down because of COVID. So I thought my little book, which, I mean, I'm very proud of. I think it's the best book I've ever written, my 24th novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, um, never got the kick at the can that it deserved. And then lo and behold, after I finished my book, Christopher Nolan announced that he was making this $100 million, he hopes, blockbuster film telling the story about J. Robert Oppenheimer. And it premieres on July uh, 21st, 2023. So I've been doing what I can to... You know, ride the coattails a little bit of that since there's oppie fever right now. But I got to tell you, honestly, uh, Michael and, and Alan, I'm not sure it's going to be the hit film that uh, op, that uh, Christopher Nolan wants it to be. When he started making it, that was pre the invasion of Ukraine. That was pre us worrying again about uh, nuclear war. Right. Uh, right. And um the idea that a summer film to go see is three hours of watching in excruciating detail the Trinity test and the bombing and killing of civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in I, I, I'm stunned that he's done IMAX, 70 millimeter, and most of the film is in black and white. They seem like completely opposite choices, a black and white film and IMAX 70 millimeter. I don't know how it's going to do in the box office, but I sure hope it gives my book, <laughs> The Oppenheimer Alternative, a little bit of uh, additional legs these uh, next couple of weeks. You know, what does he base his story on? Like, what, what's different about him? Or do you know what's different about him? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So his is, he doesn't like the term, Christopher Nolan, but it is what the industry calls a biopic, a biographical motion picture. There's nothing speculative or, uh, you know, if there's any fiction in it, it's because he stretched the truth, not because he's ignored the truth. And he did buy the rights to a very fine book as the basis for his film. He bought the rights to the Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Oppenheimer called American Prometheus. And the subtitle is uh, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. American Prometheus by Martin J. Sherwin and Kai Bird. Kai, an unusual first name, K-A-I. Kai Bird and Marty Sherwin. And Marty, who sadly passed away recently, didn't get to see the film made on based on his book, uh, did give me a lovely cover blurb for my novel uh, when he read it back in, I guess, 2020. Um, so the film Oppenheimer is based on the best 
biography of Oppenheimer that was ever written. Oppie himself never wrote an autobiography. Many of the famous Manhattan Project scientists did. He did not. So this is the best account we have of his life. My book is a novel that purports to tell the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer uh, in reality up until the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then following on from that where he attempts to rehabilitate his public uh, perception, which became very negative uh, when he was branded a communist in kind of a McCarthy era, a witch hunt. Yeah, actually, I was, I was, I've been doing a lot of reading and research in that era, and I'm still, I'm blown away about how, how involved it really was. This was, that was a very serious thing in that, in that time period of, of being a communist. Yeah, you know, it, we look at it today as something that lots of people flirt with on university campuses, communism, socialism, all kinds of things, right? And, uh, of course, nobody is happy about, uh, really any of the actual extant communist governments. They don't function very well. But the Red Scare in the 1950s, uh, McCarthy going after people who, you know, in the 30s and 40s, it had been a fairly innocent thing to be a member of the American Communist Party. Oppie himself, and nobody has ever been able to prove the opposite, Oppie himself claims that he never was a member of the Communist Party. But that said, there was no doubt whatsoever that his wife Kitty was, that his brother Frank was, that his mistress Jean Tatlock, played by Florence Pugh in the upcoming movie, was, uh, that he certainly was a fellow traveler, as the phrase went, very sympathetic to a lot of the ideals. Uh, but when they came after him, uh, they came after him hard for his communist associations. And for a guy who had his whole life had been about, uh, you know, in terms of the Manhattan Project, being the insider. One of the other great biographies of Oppenheimer is called Oppenheimer Inside the Center uh, about his desire, his compulsion to be in the middle of things, to be having lunch with presidents and being on first name basis with generals. Uh, all of that was stripped from him uh, very pettily by the United States government. And and they never did. Did he ever, you know, win back any of his, you know, you know, was there any positive feedback about him eventually or? So what happened was this. Um, he was stripped uh, of his what's called a Q clearance, the letter Q, uh, which meant access to nuclear secrets. He was stripped of that, never able to uh, have any access to that information again until 1963. Now, it's 1945 is when he had his great triumph, creating the atomic bomb. So 18 years later, he was stripped for 18 years of his, uh, and never got his Q clearance back. But in 1963, just before he was assassinated, John F. Kennedy, the president of the United States, had decided to give the Enrico Fermi Medal to Oppenheimer, which is uh, Fermi, of course, Nobel Prize winning physicist, which was considered next to the Nobel Prize, the biggest prize you could get in physics. And uh, then, of course, Kennedy was assassinated. And Oppie thought it had been, he'd been announced that he was going to be the recipient. He'd been not publicly announced, but on the QT said, hey, come to Washington, you're going to get a medal. And then he thought it was all lost. And miracle of miracles, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, went ahead and gave him the medal. And as Oppie said, I suspect there was more than a little charity on your part, Mr. President, meaning Mr. Johnson, and more than a little bravery on your part to go ahead and give this to me. He meant given uh, all the people who thought that he was a communist. Right, because that was a big deal. I've been, I've been doing researching a case for the Goldmark family out of Seattle, the senator, and, and how yes. you know they accused him. And then in the 80s, his son, a lawyer in Seattle, was was killed along with his family by that guy who belonged to the uh, group that thought he was a communist. He thought he was, you know, the father, not the son. And he killed the whole family. And um, so it had a huge impact, much more than I think we realize. It did. You know, uh, Aaron Sorkin did a very interesting um uh, made for TV movie or miniseries starring Nicole Kidman, um, at, about 
Lucy and Desi. I think that was the title of it. And of course, Lucille Ball was investigated for being a communist as well. And of course, Desi from Cuba, uh, was also implicated. Uh, and so the United States at that time pretty famously would go after anybody, including nobody was more beloved than Lucille right. Ball. Uh, and nobody had done more to bring the war in the Pacific to an end than J. Robert Oppenheimer. Doesn't matter. They went after them. As Albert Einstein said of Oppie, Oppie's greatest uh, flaw is that he's in love with a woman who doesn't love him back. And that woman is the United States government. Well, wasn't it just last year that they nullified that night? decision yes finally 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 of course doesn't do him any good he's dead didn't do his daughter uh, any good she committed suicide she had wanted to be a united nations translator like her father she was a you know a polyglot spoke many languages she couldn't get security clearance to work at the united nations because her father had lost his security clearance and had been branded a communist. So Oppie died without being vindicated. His daughter committed suicide as part of the aftermath of this. She's a very disturbed woman in a lot of ways, but part of the aftermath of all it cost his daughter his, his life, her life. Uh, but yes, they finally vacated. They called it vacated the uh, uh, conviction in his security review board hearing that he was not in fact, uh, to be allowed nuclear secrets. So too little, too late. But yes, finally, uh, you know, as they always say, uh, the, uh, another famous saying about the Americans, Americans always do the right thing after they've tried everything else first. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's, that's a, that sounds like me, too. I'm from Buffalo. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. That's right, where you could just be destroyed and really destroyed because, you know, uh, the guy who, who went after um, Oppie, uh, Louis Strauss, who was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, um, and uh, a senator named uh, Hickenlooper uh, and so forth, the people who went after him, uh, they felt just as a lot of the Me Too movement, that the movement was so important, it didn't matter if the targets deserved to be targeted or not. Uh, they were collateral damage. As long as the movement was advancing, the anti-communist movement or the movement to oust all of the sexism and sexual abuse and assault in the entertainment industry, in particular with the Me Too movement, that it didn't matter who was being run over as long as the cause was being advanced. And we saw careers ruined by communist witch hunt, and we saw some careers ruined, too, uh, by the uh, Me Too movement, very much so. And, of course, some deserving people who were brought down. Roger Ailes, classic example of a guy who should have been brought down decades earlier, the, the former president of Fox News. Right, right. <laughs> well, you know, so when you go through this, like um, when you wrote this book and when you put it together and doing the research... Uh, how does something like that change you as a person and as a writer for the next book? It really does because uh, change you because, you know, everybody knows something, even before all the hype around Christopher Nolan's film that's about right. to debut. Everybody knew something about J. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb. Well, that phrase can't help but have an emotional weight for you, whether you thought it was right or wrong that the United States used it. Obviously, the Japanese were not uh, big fans of it being used at all. But when you get into really researching the man, J. Robert Oppenheimer, such a complex individual. I.I. I. Robbie, uh, who was one of the few people who spoke in Oppenheimer's favor at his security review board hearing, said of himself, Robbie, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, R-A-B-I is the spelling of that name, uh, said, God knows, Lord knows, I'm a complicated person. But compared to Oppenheimer, I'm very, very simple. Oppenheimer was so bright, so much a genius, and so conflicted, a uh, very mixed up person, mixed up about his sexuality. He was uh, certainly bisexual, possibly even just out and out homosexual, but not able to deal with that as a, you know, a person born in the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, he tried to kill his tutor at um, uh, Cambridge University, the Cavendish Laboratory, uh, Patrick Blackett. Uh, Oppie was in love with him, uh, made a pass at him, was rejected, 
and off he actually covered an apple and left it as a, you know, the traditional gift for the teacher with cyanide wow. for Patrick Holy Blackett. Shit. Yeah. And he only got away, you know, he was, somebody recognized that Oppie was unstable in this area. Uh, Oppie's father, who was a very astute collector of original artwork, showed up at Cambridge, bribed Cambridge with original paintings that were worth a fortune and said, you know, if you don't press criminal charges, Oppenheimer, my son, uh, uh, Robert, will get psychiatric treatment and he will go away from England and not come back. And that's how he got away with it. But he was, in fact, uh, immediately set off to be treated by uh, a great disciple of Freud, psychoanalysis, to try and sort out why he tried to kill somebody. Wow. Uh, how do you decide what you're going to include in a story or in a book when you're doing this research and you find out so many details? And it's tricky because when you're writing about a man who was real and did have a family members, uh, at least one of which his son is still alive. And of course, there are other people who are related to him and knew him. You have a, you have to be a bit of a, I got to say, you got to be a bit of a jerk. If you're going to be an author, you got to say, I'm not going to worry about what the people who knew him thought. You know, it would have been very easy for me to go to Peter Oppenheimer, his son, who's a, a middle-aged man now, and say, hey, Peter, I'm writing a, a novel where your dad's the main character. Um, what do you think about that? And Peter might very well have said, can you leave out, you know, the fact that he cheated on my mother, his mother, Kitty, was, you know, he was cheating on her with uh, Gene Tatlock. Yeah, people have talked about that so much. Will you leave it out? Well, I didn't ask Peter, and I left it in. And apparently there are all kinds of nude scenes between Killian Murphy and Florence Pugh, who is playing um, uh, his uh, office lover, uh, Gene Tatlock, and Killian Murphy's playing Oppenheimer. Uh, and, in fact, there's a Twitter uh, storm going on right now about it because Killian Murphy is 20 years older than uh, Florence Pugh, and yet he's playing her lover in a typical Hollywood fashion of there being a huge age gap between the man and the woman. In reality, there was a 10-year gap between Oppenheimer and uh, Gene Tatlock. But yeah, you got to decide that your duty is to the audience, not to the people who knew the real person you're writing about. Yeah. To tell the truth. Or as you know, Yousef Kars. Uh, you know, the great Canadian portrait photographer when he uh, did his great portrait of uh, Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet premier. Uh, Khrushchev said, capture me warts and all. That's your job, warts and all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's still, I, I would still wonder what rabbit holes you would go down. How long did it take you to do the research on him? Well over a year of full time. I'm talking 40 hours a week research. My full time job was just researching Oppenheimer, the other physicists involved with the Manhattan Project, and the circumstances of, you know, the Los Alamos Laboratory, the creation of Fat Man and Little Boy, uh, the, although the, the characters involved with it, it was fascinating. And I could have spent more time researching. I was just, I, I write my novels to support my research habit. Uh, nobody will pay <laughs> me to do the research I want to do, but they'll pay me to write a novel. Did you have the idea of uh, the what you were going to do before you researched no. and then that supported it? Or you just decided, I want to do a, a fiction novel or a, a sci-fi novel on Oppenheimer? Exactly. Now, it's an excellent question, Michael, because uh, if you decide in advance what your angle is going to be, then you get into confirmation bias, which is why so many conspiracy theories flourish, right? You only look for the information that supports what you've already made up your mind about. This is why I could never watch the TV show The X-Files, because Fox Mulder had decided, I want to believe, he'd made his decision, I want to believe in the aliens, and so the evidence that supports the existence of them, I will keep seeking out, and the evidence that they don't exist, I will not even look for, I will ignore. And... Uh, to me, the, you know, uh, science fiction means being legitimately scientifically oriented. You go in with no preconceptions. Now, I came out with a very, I'd like to think, sophisticated and nuanced understanding of Oppenheimer, uh, not as, you know, um, a monster and not as a saint. And it's going to be very interesting to see what Christopher Nolan does in his movie, because it's way too easy to ultimately decide 
uh, you know, that it's Saint uh, Robert Oppenheimer, that he uh, was crucified by the United States government and uh, ultimately, you know, was uh, re- reborn uh, thanks to the largesse of, uh, that I mentioned before of uh, LBJ, of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see whether uh, Nolan and the actor Killian Murphy paint Oppenheimer warts and all. Yeah, that's going to be the, the, the hard thing because you could, you could purposely put in kind of the bad things and focus on all the, the negative toward, th- you know, what he had done in his life. And it would come out like he was an evil person. There would be nothing about, I, I, that's got to be, you know, it's got to be tough not to get too far into one area without showing the other. That's got to be a real difficult process. It really is. And when you're writing, you know, a, a novel that you've made up out of whole cloth, people expect there to be a protagonist, that is a hero, and an antagonist, that is a villain. That's pretty standard in most genre fiction. In real life, of course, very few people think that they're the evil one, that think that they're the antagonist. And um, in the story of Oppenheimer, you know, is Oppenheimer the hero or villain? Is uh, Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, who very much opposed Oppenheimer and was largely responsible for his downfall, uh, branding him, agreeing that he probably was a security risk. Uh, is he a hero or a villain? Well, they none of them would have said that they were the villains in the piece. And uh, it, it's a really tough writing job to write a novel that doesn't have a clear-cut hero and doesn't have a clear-cut villain, but still has lots of drama and conflict and action and hopefully some humor and some romance and some adventure and all the things that make for a rip-roaring read. Right. you kind of got to show the all aspects of humanity because that's what we all are, really. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, this is why, despite the fact that I'm a science fiction fan as well as a, a writer and reader, um, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. For me, the biggest non-starter in Star Wars is the characters themselves know if they're good or evil, right? They know if they're on the dark side or the light side of the Force. Darth Vader knows that he's evil. Luke Skywalker knows that he is good. And there's no debate amongst that, you know? Whereas uh, in Star Trek, which is more nuanced, you know, the morally conflicted characters have to make morally complex decisions, which I find much more interesting uh, in terms of my diet of entertainment. Right. It's more realistic, in a sense. It's much more realistic. This is why the polarization in politics today, whether it's in <laughs> Canada or the United States or anywhere, uh, I find so frustrating. You know, uh, uh, nobody is pure villain. Nobody is pure uh, hero. And yet, if you listen to uh, people talk about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or in Canada, Pierre Trudeau or Pierre Polivier, who is... Uh, you know, the leader of uh, uh, the Conservative Party up here, they're painted, depending on who you ask, as pure villain or pure hero. And, of course, they're neither of those things. Nobody is. But it's a team sport. My, my <laughs> Buffalo Bills always are the best. Yeah. Well, you have a good point. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and so how do you um, develop the char- character, like the personality of these people? in your book, considering that they're, they're all past. And so you're kind of going by, I guess, actions and maybe biographies and, and things like that. So how do you decide how you make this person's dialogue? Yes, it's very interesting. Now, in terms of Oppenheimer, the actual man, of course, an enormous amount was recorded. Uh, for instance, the multi-day security hearings were all, you know, audio recorded as well as transcribed word for word. And he did an enormous number of interviews with, you know, uh, for instance, the great American journalist on CBS, Edward R. Murrow. Uh, so there are all kinds of tape recordings, some uh, um, motion picture film as well of Oppie, the way he spoke, very soft spoken, uh, very erudite. The way, And it's kind of interesting. I just read an interview yesterday with Killian Murphy who had to decide, of course, how much of an impersonation he was going to do of Oppenheimer uh, for uh, portraying him on film. Oppie, for instance, despite being an extraordinarily charismatic, good-looking man, was duck-footed. 
He had an odd gait. His feet were splayed at 90 degrees to each other. Uh, he also had a habit when he was thinking. You know how I might say um or huh? He would right. go nim, 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 N-I-M, N-I-M, nim, 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 all the time. Now, you know, I put that in once or twice in the novel. That's all you need uh, to show those savvy readers that you're aware of the habit. But can you do that in a three our film, right? The tour <laughs> yeah. that got the people lost on Gilligan's Island was as long as uh, this Oppenheimer film. Three hours. You can't have every few sentences the main character going, nim, 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 nim. Drive people nuts. <laughs> so there's a triage you do, both as a novelist and Killian Murphy, and of course the director, Christopher Nolan, had to do as actor and director. What do you leave in? What do you leave out? And um, uh, in the end, I had more latitude because, you know, I don't know how long the cuts are going to be in the op- in uh, the Oppenheimer movie. But the standard cut shot on screen length of an American motion picture for the last 50 years has been about three seconds before you change frame to something else. And that requires quite punchy dialogue in a novel. You can allow people to go on a little longer and you can have scenes that go on, you know, for what would be a 15-minute scene if it was actually filmed, whereas most scenes only last no more than two to three minutes. So the pacing that's forced upon people, uh, again, it's a it's real conundrum for this film Oppenheimer. We expect, we're all brought up now on the Marvel superhero films, and lightning-fast pa- pacing, lightning-quick cuts, constantly busy, packed to the gills frame every Every detail filled in. And Nolan wants us to sit still for three hours of a very, a story that unfolds at a quite a langorous pace over many years of J. Robert Oppenheimer's life. Again, I don't know how it's going to do in theaters, but I hope it does well. Obviously, anything that's good for people understanding Oppenheimer is good just generally for people's education and also obviously for my book, the Oppenheimer. Ultimate. Right. Right. Which is the, the key thing there. Right. You know, that's, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. my, my accountant thinks so. I'm just happy that, uh, you know, I'm disappointed when I look at the cast list because there are major figures that should be major figures in Nolan's film. You can't really tell Oppenheimer's story without having, uh, his relationship with Edward Teller, but Teller's not a major figure in Oppenheimer's film. With Oppenheimer's best friend, Hocan Chevalier, who Oppenheimer ruined, uh, and again, not a major character in the film, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, Leo Zillard, uh, who was the guy who started the Manhattan Project, not a major character. So, you know, uh, uh, Nolan has had to pick and choose. I got to have a wider canvas, in a way, having a novel, even than he has in 70-millimeter IMAX. Right. So they're, the target audience for that, that film coming up probably is an older group. But you can't have hemorrhoids because it's a three-hour <laughs> film. So it's that subset, uh, Michael, of old people who don't have hemorrhoids who can sit still for three hours it's, and, and don't need to go to the washroom, right? Three hours. Yeah. So uh, it's really going to be fascinating to see how well it does. And you know, uh, uh, this is an incredible um choice that the young audience will have to make on that fateful day, Friday, 21st of July, um, the because that's the opening day for Oppenheimer and for Barbie, the film based on Mattel's Barbie doll franchise. <laughs> yeah, Barbie. Starring Margot Robbie. These two, you cannot ask for two more different films competing for the title of the summer blockbuster. And I got to say, you know, one of them, Barbie, Sounds like it's going to be lots of fun and, uh, you know, the kind of thing that, yeah, might be a fun way to spend an evening in the summer. And Oppie may, in fact, be an endurance test, whereas, of course, you can read my book or, for that matter, the <laughs> wonderful biography, uh, American Prometheus, that I mentioned earlier, uh, at your leisure over the course of several nice, pleasant summer nights on your back porch, you know, sipping a mint and julep as Oppie himself might have, or actually a martini, his favorite drink. He was legendary as a maker of martinis, famously strong and famously good. Well, you know, I think you might do better just uh, renting Barbie and reading the book because it'll be pretty vapid <laughs> watching Barbie. There won't be a whole lot of substance there. 
People have come out of advanced screenings of the Oppenheimer movie and said it's devastating. What Christopher Nolan decided to do, and I can understand as a filmmaker, you want challenges. He decided to recreate the first ever atomic bomb explosion, the Trinity test, which happened near Los Alamos, New Mexico, um, in, uh, in actually close to Alamogordo for the actual test. Uh, in July of 1945, the first ever atomic bomb explosion. And he decided to do it with conventional explosives and film it with IMAX. Um, but it's a death, you know, very few people have witnessed an atomic bomb explosion with unshielded eyes and survived. Uh, it killed an enormous number of people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and at, uh, Los Alam, or at, uh, Alamogordo, the original test, of course, everybody was wearing welder's glasses uh, and so didn't really see it with the naked eye. But Nolan has decided to show us in 70 millimeter IMAX, <laughs> six story high screens, what it was actually like. And people come out of that apparently really devastated. So it's, you know, I can understand the technical challenge and he didn't want to use CGI. He wanted to do an actual explosion. But uh, I don't know how how people are going to say Barbie light and frothy or I can watch this and be scarred for life. It's going to be interesting to see what the box office figures are. Well, it's certainly not going to be a feel good movie. I mean, no, you know, and and we have seen and uh, Michael, you mentioned very wisely that this probably appeals to an older crowd. Well, we just saw uh, the latest Indiana Jones film, the fourth and final one, Tank at the box office, because guess what? The older crowd isn't going to movies anymore. So yeah, right. it, yeah. it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I don't. Since uh, Ever since COVID, and now I have no desire to go back, actually. It was a game changer, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I decided, you know, and I, after COVID, I bought a nice big, you know, 75-inch 4K TV, quality sound bar and all of that. And I'm more than content with my home theater set up for almost every film that I want to see. Right, right. Why well, go out and fight the screaming kids and sticky seats, and you can just stay home and do it yourself, and it's much better. That's right. You know, That's now, right. But I am one of those that loves to do that, but my problem, though, is my hemorrhoids, and so I can only make a two-hour <laughs> movie. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. A three-hour sitting Too thing long. is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's no intermission, which is interesting. I remember oh, really? huh. way back in the day, I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey at its first run, 1968. I was eight years old. And um, they had an intermission. That movie was only two hours and 40 minutes. But they realized even then, you got to have an intermission. Three hours is an endurance feat. So it'll be interesting to see. Anyways, yeah. Yeah. probably enough about Oppenheimer. I wanted to also mention... Um, Alan, that I have been very lucky recently, uh, even though it's three years since my last book, that I just got the L. Ron Hubbard Lifetime Achievement Award presented at the Writers of the Future Banquet in Los Angeles. And, of course, um, I just want to mention that because uh, it, it meant a great deal to me as a uh, Lifetime Achievement uh, Award. I'm getting a couple of Lifetime Achievement Honors this year, that award. And also I'm author, guest of honor at the 81st World Science Fiction Convention, which is being held in Chengdu, China, for the first time ever in China. It's first one in 1939 was in New York City um, uh, in October of this year. But um, Hubbard endowed the Writers of the Future contest for up-and-coming science fiction writers. I've been a judge of that contest since uh, 2005, uh, entered the contest before I uh, was an established writer, uh, no entry fees. Anybody can enter. The biggest and best names in science fiction, including my friend Nettie Okorafor, who just announced today that she sold a novel for seven figures to a major uh, U.S. publisher as wow. uh, one of our judges, along with me and Gregory Benford, Larry Niven, Nancy Crest, the biggest names in science fiction. Uh, go to writersofthefuture.com for all the information. And our latest anthology winners, the 39th volume, uh, L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, volume 39, just came out in bookstores everywhere. Yeah, that's fantastic. We have a yes. couple of the uh, new writer, um, new writers that made that edition coming up next week. Oh, excellent, excellent. You know, I am uh, always delighted 
when some of the, uh, you know, I, I live in Toronto, when some of the uh, winners turn out to be Canadian, which we had this past year, because as a judge, uh, none of us judges see the names. So we don't know, you know, the name, the ethnicity, the gender, the gender orientation, uh, the uh, geographic origin, nothing at all, just whether you've written good stories. Uh, so I'm always uh, happily surprised in retrospect when some of them turn out to be Canadians, but we're delighted we have had winners from all over the world. Uh, and it is such a thrill to be involved with that contest. How, how does, <laughs> this is a hard question, but how does it feel to be uh, winning lifetime achievements? Does that make you feel old? Yes, it does. <laughs> I am 63 years old and um, I, uh, you know, I'm gratified that people are looking back on the career and saying, yeah, you made a difference as a writer. And I also realize that there are lots of, one of the reasons I'm a judge for Writers of the Future, lots of exciting new voices coming up. Uh, I'm quite content to be kind of um, the grand old man of Canadian science fiction these days. And uh, although I'm still writing, as I say, I have a new book coming out this fall, uh, but I am uh, nonetheless pleased to see that because there was nobody writing Canadian science fiction, by which I mean a Canadian writing science fiction set in Canada until I came along. Uh, and uh, I am delighted to see so many people following in my footsteps. So, yeah, it, absolutely. A career retrospective is um, a bit of a sobering thing. You look back and say, yeah, way more years have passed than I've got left. But yeah. it also is really nice to be recognized well you broke the mold right <laughs> yeah yeah you know everybody was telling me when i started off um don't set your stories in canada and i said why not yeah. said, nobody in the states will buy them and i said who has tested that proposition yeah. and in now my first novel came out in 1990 uh so that's 33 years ago and in all that time no american editor publisher, agent, bookseller, or reader, or reviewer, has ever said a negative word about the Canadian content in my books. But Canadians are constantly saying, oh, Americans won't get that. Americans won't understand that. Americans won't want to read about that. We underestimate uh, our great neighbors to the south. They have, uh, certainly in the reading department, absolutely no prejudice they read Canadians, they read Australians. You know, you just have to look at the gigantic success of Stig Larsson, the girl with the dragon tattoo, which was, you know, um, Swedish, right? right. Scandinavian. Uh, that took America by storm. Nobody, nobody cares where you're from as a writer uh, or where your story is set, as long as you set a good story. Yeah. Yeah. It's just getting it, getting the attention and getting it out there, because once you do that, it doesn't matter. You know, exactly. But, exactly. You know, do you, do you, do, but do you, great, wise, old writer, do you set a um, kind of a, a standard in a sense of what you want people to take away from a book when you put it out? I want them to be thinking about the book a month after they finished reading it. A month. Not, you know, just when they close the book and go, huh, that well, was kind of entertaining. I want them to take away something that's changed their perspective on the world. I know this sounds grandiose and highfalutin, but I think science fiction is important. It shocks people out of their complacency, whether it's their complacency about what the future might look like in terms of technology, about sociology, about gender roles, about uh, um, ethical issues, and I, I certainly use my science fiction to explore all those things. And I want people to say, you know, Rob, that book stuck with me and it made me think. And yeah, it's, you know, means that my fiction isn't for everybody. Uh, some people want just escapism, just an easy beach read. I like to think my books are easy reading. You know, I, my, my language was clean and accessible and so forth. Uh, Clean, there's some dirty words, but yeah. <laughs> clean is in a journalistic style of, you know, being quite uh, easy to read, uh, you know. But um, I want them to be books that stick with you and make you think. Right. 
That's important. So listen, um, how do people find Robert J. Sawyer? Like, you know. Well, one of the predictions I got right many years ago, way back in 1995, Uh-oh. was that this World Wide Web thing was going to be a big deal. And so I managed to score a wonderful URL, that is a web address, for my website. It's sfwriter.com. S is in science, F is in fiction, writer.com. You can find everything you need to know about me and my work there. Uh, and, uh, my books are available worldwide, uh, you know, in, uh, bookstores for sure, but also, uh, in ebook editions for all platforms, audio books for every one of my audio, my books, including the Oppenheimer Alternative, uh, and, um, uh, ebooks, audio books, print editions. Uh, but a good starting point is sfwriter.com to learn all about the world of Robert J. Sawyer. Fantastic. Are you are you doing social media? Are you dancing on TikTok? Yeah, I have a TikTok channel uh, <laughs> where I talk mostly about the history of science fiction. I am on Facebook and I'm on Twitter and I'm on Patreon for those who want to have, uh, you know, support my work a little bit, maybe financially and um, get to read uh, novels in advance and see works in progress and all that kind of stuff. Well, fantastic. Now, of course, we're going to have that up on our website. Lovely. Thank you. People can find you easily that way. You know, they don't need to teleporter. That's right. Well, exactly. Need- the world comes to us, right? We don't, you know, Star Trek was all about their five-year mission to go places. Eh, we don't go anywhere anymore. We're post-COVID. We stay yeah. at home and the universe comes to us. Yeah. Just missing the transport. That's right. Exactly. So, Robert, so Robert, uh, I'm supposed to ask questions, but I just loved listening. Well, to thank you, Michael. I appreciate that. Outstanding. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you being here. Your uh, your last book uh, is called The Oppenheimer Alternative, and of course it's out at, in stores now. Don't miss it. Um, and of course our guest, Robert J. Sawyer, thank you for being here. My pleasure, my friends. Always good to chat with you. Great speaking with you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.com houseofmystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.